0: ladies and gentlemen boys and girls welcome to another wonderful episode of catholic chat joining us today is a very special guest mr charlie Patrizzo. and ariel hobbs our editor for liturgical theology will be introducing him and ariel i'll just hand things off to you Uh, let us know about charlie's fantastic work
1: okay so charlie Your ministry is called Project to Heal, located in Waxhaw, North Carolina, and you're the founder and the CEO. Can you tell us a little bit about why you started Project to Heal, why this ministry is important to you, and how it got started?
0: Sure. So Project to Heal started in 2005, and that was a time, uh, it was a trying time for my wife and I. At the end of 2003, Uh, her father succumbed to cancer that he only learned about a month earlier. And my mother was also uh, struggling with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And we lost her not long after that. And you know, morality smacks you in the face when you lose your parents. And, you know, or I should say, you know, you, you think about mortality, not morality, mortality. You know, my parents are gone, so I'm the next to go. And And so you really start thinking about, for me anyway, what is life really about? And, you know, for most of my life, um, I, I, I was not, I was not a good Catholic. I went to church out of obligation, but nothing more. Now, when I married, my wife was a rock. She was a rock of faith. She went to, you know, Catholic grammar school, Catholic middle school, Catholic high school, Catholic university. And so, you know, her dedication to the faith, I guess, you know, rubbed off on me a little bit. And I, uh, you know, started going to church again, fits and starts. I'd go for a long time, then I'd stop. But uh, after, you know, the passing of our parents, it really hit me. And um, so I started really, really digging in and learning i should say that the first thing i did because uh, like most catholics uh you, know, you have questions like why do i need to why do i need to tell m- of my priest my sins or you know why do we pray to this lady and and so instead of just letting those things exist as questions i started digging in and really really started learning um the truths of our faith and and how beautiful you know it's just how beautiful our faith is, with everything, our saints and 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 our mass and you know all the meaning of that. Uh, so um, in turn, you know, uh, I think it was Luke was it Luke nine twenty six or something? I forgot what the passage was, but uh, we're called to serve others. We're called to serve. Jesus calls us to serve others, and so. Uh, I started thinking about um, what gift I might have. And, you know, my wife and I uh, sat down and we thought about this. And, you know, we kind of laughed because we said, well, we're both crazy about dogs. We both love dogs. And so I I took that and I ran with it and I kind of started doing some research. And I found um, an interesting um, study about uh, the service dog industry and essentially what the study said was that the majority of service dog organizations do not have a breeding program. And so what they do to find dogs to train is what you might expect they do. They go to shelters that are full of dogs and they take these dogs back and they train them to become service dogs. However, the study, which was a longitudinal study, it took place over 10 years, I believe, Found that only one so if you walk in a shelter and there's a hundred dogs, let's say on average, the trainer that went there would evaluate, and of the hundred maybe eight dogs would come back to the to the organization to be trained of the eight that came back, only one made it to be partnered as a service dog, so one out of eight is a twelve and a half percent success rate, and so you know, I began to look at the, the, the service dog model uh, and looked at, well, it takes two, three years, sometimes up to five years for someone in, in need to get a service dog. And the cost is 25 to $35,000. And I knew that, you know, I, I was a businessman before I started this. I worked in the financial services industry and it was easy to recognize that with such a high rate of inefficiency, this is going to drive the costs up. And so my wife and I came to the conclusion that, well, if we could, so it was also known that the best breed of dogs for service work are golden retrievers and Labrador retrievers. The challenge with your golden retrievers is that they have such a high rate of cancer that you lose many of them at a young age. All retrievers in general have a high rate of cancer, but Labrador retrievers significantly lower than um, uh, golden retrievers. So that's the way we we went. We decided that we were going to start an organization to breed outstanding Labrador retriever puppies, and we were going to donate these puppies to any organization across the country that met our qualifications or our due diligence and uh, did not have a breeding program, and we would donate them. And so um, there's two parts to the work there. You've got the, the lineage of the dogs, you have to know the lineage and the pedigrees. And that makes up about 33% of what a, a puppy becomes as an adult, it can be attributed back to his pedigree. But two thirds of what a puppy becomes is attributable to the first 16 weeks of his life or her life and how they're nurtured and what they're exposed to and how they're exposed to that. So I built, we built a program of nature nurture and our puppies, kind of uh, have about, so if you look at them overall, I mean, we have one organization in Maryland that has has never had a puppy of ours put into training that has failed. They have a hundred percent success rate with our puppies, but more, you know, if you look at overall, our puppies have about a 75% success rate, but when you consider the fact that we're donating these puppies, right, and we put them through the most critical part of their life, we're a, reducing the cost of that dog significantly, and we're reducing the time it should take this organization to get dogs out. So that's the rationale for starting Project Heal. And it, it all, you know, if I never went searching for the truth of my Catholic faith, this never would have happened. It never would have happened. So that that's why we exist, to serve God. Um, and that happened because I... I went on a, you know, I went on a trip to find out more about my faith, reading books and articles and all of that. So, you know, in short, that's the answer to why we started.
1: I know you have an incredible life story. And so recently a movie was made, Charlie Scars, about some events in your childhood and how that eventually shaped the story of Project to Heal when was that movie made? Um, how did it participate in telling your life story and how did it also show that formation process?
0: Sure. Uh, so back in 2012, we were looking for ways. See, when you start a nonprofit, you think, Oh, you know, people learn about us. They'll start sending money. <laughs> just, you, you've got to do a great deal of marketing and getting the word out. And so I, um, engaged a uh, video production company. And the goal was to, to create a library of training videos, dog training videos, that people could come and access um, at no cost. But they would, through that, they would learn about our work and hopefully come to donate. Um, and so the video production company did a lot of uh, back work before they came and met with me. And they basically said, wow, you have a, you know, a tremendous story. And we'd like to do more than training videos. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, we'd like to make a documentary about your life. I'm like, really? Yeah. They said, we'd like to make a documentary about your life and how it led to what you're doing. And so um, I said, well, how much is that going to cost? And they said, it's not going to cost anything. We're going to do it because uh, we want to produce independent movies. And so um, we did the movie. Uh, much of it talked about my faith. But what happened in that movie, it was, remember, it was supposed to be a documentary, but it became a docudrama. And the reason it did was because uh, in filming, we went to one of the organizations. In Indiana, that we donate our puppies to, and they were, hap- they were having a graduation of service their service dogs, and a, and a couple of project heal dogs uh, were in that. So we were invited, and it was taking place inside the Indiana Women's Prison. And so uh, prior to um, going there, I did some research on the prison. It was an all women's prison, and I learned the story of one of the inmates was a tragic, tragic story about four girls, teenage girls who actually murdered another girl. It was a terrible, terrible story. Um, And so what I learned was that one one of the women that were part of that crime was a trainer of dogs in the program. And when I learned that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. You know, I I don't know if I, you know, I was was thinking to myself, do do I really want to donate dogs to people like this? And You know, I thought maybe we were donating dogs to people who, you know, uh, you know, didn't do hard crimes, but, you know, monetary crimes or financial crimes or stuff like that. But so what happened was I had the opportunity to um, interview this woman who was the ringleader of this crime that took place, you know, uh, what is it, 92? So we're talking about, you know, 30 years ago now. Um, but it was you know obviously it was two thousand and twelve, it was about twenty years ago, and I got to interview her, and I started to uh, she didn't know that I knew about her crime, but I told her I did, and so the interview started to take a direction where um, and 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 you know the victim i'm a burn victim, and what I knew from the story was that the young girl. Uh, they burned her, as disgusting as it seems. So I started going down this path where I was trying to get an interview that would really um, make people, you know, meet. I was the first, she said she had 100 requests for interviews from the top names, you know, Oprah Winfrey, all, all these big names. And she never gave an interview because uh, in respect to the mother of the her victim, she didn't want to cause her any more pain. But I got this interview, and um, I, to- I I went down this path of kind of trying to make her look bad, and and then it almost like God slapped me in the middle of the interview and said, you know, almost like I, I- like don't you judge her, I'll judge her. And so kind of took a different way with the interview, and it ended up in a place where um, she she. She showed how terribly, how much she terribly regretted what she did, and oddly enough, at the same time we were filming, it was the 20th anniversary of the death of her daughter, and she was on the the uh, Oprah show for two days in a row. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the 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 bald guy, Dr. Phil. She was on his show, and all she said was, "I only, you know, the only I like, can't bring my daughter back. The only thing I asked is that they should." you know, they don't even show remorse. And so I had these, this video now, which showed how remorseful this young lady was. And so what I did was I called, I somehow got the phone number of the victim's mother. And I told her, you know, I saw you and you're looking for remorse. And I want to show you something that we filmed. And so she agreed for me to come to the lawyer's office that she worked in and show me, show her this video. And when she saw the remorse of the ringleader of the crime, she said, you know, uh, I, I, I do see the remorse. And, and so eventually what happens is that ringleader, the mother, allowed her at my request to train one of our puppies in memory of her daughter. And she named the dog Angel. And but beyond that, I maintained communication with this woman and eventually I, I talked to her about the faith and I sent her a Roman, a daily Roman missal, and she was brought into the Catholic church. Um, I guess about a year and a half after the whole thing started, the movie's called Charlie scars. And um, you know, I'm very proud of that movie um, because God, I believe God used me as a tool of mercy. and And so I'm really proud of that. So, and if that's, you know, if people want to see that, um, they can order a copy um, through us here at Project to Heal, um, and, uh, or if they want to watch it, like, on the internet, they just type in the search words, Gum Road, Gumroad, Gum Road, comma, Charlie Scars, and they can watch it for a dollar in high definition. So, yeah, so that's, you know, that was, and that really, Ariel, that really opened up, like, people across the nation, we were... We were in like, we were selected to be viewed in one of the biggest uh, film festivals in the United States, the River Bend Film Festival. First uh, first prize was $25,000. We didn't win, but just to get your piece viewed there is a big thing. And we did end up winning another uh, um, independent film festival right here in North Carolina. Um, It was showed in the Charlotte Film Festival, but it won the Asheville Film Festival. So I was very proud of that. And it got the whole story, if you will, of Project to Heal out to the people. So it helped it us a lot.
1: It's the story, but also that story of forgiveness, I'm assuming, and then also like conversion, which is an integral part of not just the mission of Project to Heal, but also your Catholic faith.
0: You know, it's funny. We did a premiere of the movie here in Charlotte. And uh, of course I invited the mother of the child and her husband. um, And uh, I said, look, we're going to pay for everything. And the the people, Ariel, in the area where she lived, the small town she lived in, when they found out on the news that she said yes to allowing the the girl that killed her daughter to train a dog in her memory, they went nuts. They thought she was crazy, uh, you know, but it was her decision. It was her child. And so her husband, okay, her husband, um, came to, to the, now, now I should say that her, her, her husband that was the father of the the daughter that was killed died after she was murdered. He came to drink and then he died of liver cancer. So this man, uh, Married Jackie, it's the woman's name, Jackie Vaught, uh, after Shanda lost her life. And he came and he said, after he saw the movie, he came up to me. And he, you know, he's a big, big man, a big man. I'm not a small guy, but he's a big man. And he grabbed me and he hugged me and he said, you have changed my view of mankind. And I was like, wow. Uh, Wow. He was so, he said this, so he said, um, when Jackie said yes to this, I didn't like it at all. And I can tell you though, that after she did this, the few months after it was the happiest I've seen her in the 20 years since the death of her daughter. And he said, now I understand why. Now I understand why she's been so happy and what this has meant. Um, because she got to truly see the remorse. And anytime, and good came out of bad. And I guess anytime you can do that, it's a good thing, right? And so I, I was really proud. Um, and and it's funny because my dad, his brother, was shot and killed when he was 10 years old. And that, that, you know, they said it was an accident that the kid took the gun, but the kid who did it was about 13 at the time. And it was after they were going home from school and, uh, he took his father's gun off the wall and it was loaded and he shot my uncle. And it, it, it was recorded as an accident, but one of the detectives on the case lived next door to my grandparents. And they said that the kid uh, only months earlier, was charged with trying to stab another kid. And, but my father, you know, came up to me and, and he said, you know, I never, ever um, forgave that kid who killed my brother. And he said, however, if he did something like this young woman did, the remorse she showed to the victim's mother's, He said I definitely would have forgiven her because that was the first time my father was seeing it too so it was really I I was really proud uh, of that you know and um and it made me you know really understand uh mercy you know God's mercy is endless and he asks us to be the same way and so um as hard as it was to maintain a relationship after the movie with both the victim's mother and the young woman in jail, you know, it was a tightrope act, but I did it. And, and I was lucky through my conversations about Catholicism and, and letters, there were more letters, you know, um, and, and uh, she came into the Catholic church and, and I was very thankful for that, so.
1: It probably brought a lot of closure to, to the victim's mother to be able to see the redemption going on, that redemptive arc. And brought closure in the healing process. Now you said you were a, that you're a burn victim. Yeah. So how did your process of healing go? Like what what's your story behind sure. your accidents? And sure. then how did that healing process go forth?
0: So I had two accidents. Um, the first was when I was a young boy. I was just coming five years old, and I was at my godmother's house, and she had two boys, and we were playing wiffle ball in the driveway, and uh, my cousin hit the ball and it rolled out of the driveway. And they weren't on a busy road, but you know, I didn't even look and I ran into the street and I got struck by a car and it was bad. I mean, I was thrown like a rag doll. My head was split open. I had hours of neurosurgery on my brain. I was paralyzed on the left side of my body for about a year or so. And, and it was, it it was difficult. It was a very difficult process, especially for my parents. Um, Thankfully, I don't remember much of the pain, but I relived it, you know, and, and the doctors told my parents, look, you know, uh, I had let, at that time it was called extreme unction. The priest came in and I received the last rites. And, uh, it's funny, my mom, they, they, uh, they waited, uh, back then they didn't have like constant hours in the hospital where you'd go in. So they would wait when there weren't visiting hours in a stairwell uh, with family and friends until they could go back in. And my mother was given a prayer card to St. Jude. And my mom has passed since, but what she told me was her friend gave her this card and she read the prayer on the back. I tell you, this is honest as the day is long. She said about five minutes after I read that prayer, the nurse came in to the stairwell and she said, your son called me stupid. <laughs> and my mother said, oh, I'm sorry. He didn't mean." like, She was tearing. She said, no, he's talking. He's come out of the coma. And so that happened, so my mother had a lifelong, uh, you know, she, she loved St. Jude. I mean, he's one of the, you know, saints of the impossible, right? Um, and so uh, there um, I had the prayer card after she said the prayer on my bed. And then when I was 16, I also had a very terrible accident where we were painting a house. I was working for a, a construction company And I knew no better. They gave us an aluminum ladder and we were working in Staten Island in New York City where the houses are right on top of each other. And not only are the houses on top of each other, but they're like four feet from the road. So as you might imagine, I had to lift this heavy ladder up to the peak of the house, which is about 40 feet high. So me and another young man were lifting this ladder up and one of the the, uh, stabilization boots at the bottom of the ladder was rusted and it snapped. I'll say the ladder fell two feet and it struck high power lines. And so 36,000 volts of electricity that that wire was carrying ran through my body and through the other young man's body. And uh, I was burned close to 70% of my body, third degree burns. And again, uh, when my parents asked the doctor, what, what's the outlook? And um, you know, they said, it's, it's touch and go. We'll have to see how, you know, how it goes through the first few days. Um, and so that was hard for me because I was 16 and I was very badly scarred visibly. And at 16, vanity is kind of like everything. And, and that was really hard for me, the emotional healing. But I had a dog that my dad had let us get maybe only a year or two earlier. I forgot how old he was, maybe two years earlier. And he, and because I couldn't do anything physically, I was in the house all the time, sitting in a chair or, you know, laying down. He became my best friend, that dog. And he he healed me emotionally. And so I knew the emotional healing power of a dog. And that of course was one of the things that uh, led to um, me doing what I do. That that truth that the healing power um, of the dog. So, you know, and the other thing, Ariel, was that... uh, for so long, I asked myself, you know, why did you let this happen to me, God? Why did you let this happen to me? And it wasn't until I started asking the question another way. You know, I started looking at the cup as, instead of looking at it as the cup being half empty, I started looking at it as why the half full. Why did you let me live, Lord? What did you have planned for me that two things that should have killed me, you allowed me, you know, because I'm here by the grace of God. We all are that I'm here after two accidents, which easily could have killed someone. And, and I think I found purpose. Um, it certainly wasn't for me to be here to buy, you know, I was making wonderful money to buy, you know, high dollar suits or the fanciest car or go on the fanciest vacations. It wasn't. And, you know, what I believe, is that I was here to tell my story to people who could use the encouragement, but also for God to use me to do what I love, to to, to, her, to help other children with special needs, our military members who come back with uh, emotional scars, and, and adults with disabilities with the animal I love, dogs. and 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 I think that's what God's purpose for me is and now more than ever I think it's to 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 evangelize through my work to evangelize and tell people about the you know how great the Catholic faith is and you know and and I really really love doing that I really do
1: I can definitely see how God's grace has touched your life yeah. and how you've been through that healing process multiple times, and also like, witnessed it in other people through your ministry. Yeah. So you wrote a book called Seven Steps to Healing. Um, what was What is that book about, and how is that influenced by your own healing?
0: Yeah, so the book is, um, and it's available on Amazon. It's called Seven Lessons for Healing the Hurt, and I worked with a writer on that book. And, and basically what we, you know, the writer and I talked about, we boiled it down to seven things that I believe helped me overcome, not, 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 not you know, yes, the physical, but more, more so the emotional trauma of being burned and, and the limitations it put on my life. And the things that, like playing high school football or whatever, or, or baseball, that I really couldn't do anymore because uh, I just wasn't at the same you know level of competitiveness because of what happened to me. And so I try to boil it down to seven things, but I can assure you that the bulk of the, the healing, um, and I talk about the grace of God. I talk about how um, I was introduced to a group by a, a fellow, a parishioner, a group called the missionaries of the poor and how, I started going on these mission trips and how I saw these young men who just dedicated their lives to helping the poorest of the poor and I got to participate in that and that just further entrenched me in wanting to learn more and to share my faith um, with others and, and, and certainly uh, it was part of you know me building project to heal. You know, I saw these young men working for Christ in a way that that they could, and I wanted to work for Christ using the gift that I had. And so they were very, you know, so the book kind of, it talks about the movie too. Um, I tell people, watch the movie first and and read the book because they go together, but you want to watch the movie first. So, um, what we do, um, honestly, Rariel, with the book is, is we give them away to people who give us donations. Um, I want people to understand that, uh, that this is all about my, uh, it, it's my way to thank God for what he's given me. Um, and um, it's my way to try to show others through what I do and and I'm so happy with what I do and and to tell them that, you know, you too can find this happiness, you know, you you can find your own happiness. And and I think we live in such a material world right now that people equate happiness with money or what money can buy you. And, you know, I was of that kind of thinking. But then as I came to a different way of thinking, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life right now. I mean, we have, we have so many, you know, your family, uh, we've met your family and your brothers and um, just, I can't tell you how many people we have as friends now because of the work we do, but I will tell you, um, and, and this is the God's honest truth. There are challenges, you know, because of the world we live in just last week. I uh, was very excited about a homily I heard Father Kirby give. And on Facebook, I was writing to a a parishioner, but unfortunately, or silly, it was silly of me, I wrote it on another thread that could be seen by other people. And I talked about how he um, talked about, you know, he said, you know, basically how today, There aren't bishops that have the courage that we've seen before and Catholics. He said, how, how can things like abortion and gay marriage be legal in this country? If we were courageous as Catholics and if we had courageous bishops as leaders, how did these things ever come to be? Well, somebody saw that and Oddly enough, we were going to, we had a dog that we took in who was going to be put, put down. He was a Labrador, so we took him in, and we were trying to find a home for him. And this woman who was going to take this dog saw my comment about, you know, to another parishioner, by the way, but she figured, oh, I'm going to re- read it. And, and she, so she, she called us, and she said, I don't want that dog anymore. I don't want that dog. I want nothing to do with your organization. You know, because he talked about gay marriage and, and you know, being wrong. And so, yeah, r- literally, um, we, it's like we're shunned if we talk about the truths of our faith. And, you know, I said, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. Somebody else will take that dog. Um, but, you know, uh, my wife and I do not take a salary for any of the work we do. We do not and have never charged a rent for our property, which we upfit to do this work. We do not charge for utilities. We are, in the, in the truest sense, volunteers of the organization that we created and that we run and that we probably spend combined 100 hours a week tending to. And we do that so that others can reap the benefits um, where where we can you know in in the way we do this we keep the costs very low and and we're able to do the things uh that we need to to help people um without the the costs being excessive like they are i said that a dog today for a service dog 25 to thirty five thousand dollars. now we 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 do like while we don't train service dogs we donate all of our puppies to organizations and that's always been the way of project to heal we recently started a new program where we are working with people who will be puppy raisers and uh our own trainers and we believe we can provide a dog a service dog now i'm talking to a person in need for about five thousand to seven thousand dollars which is about 20% of what the quoted cost is. And the only reason we can do that, Ariel, is because Sandy and I are the, are the executives and we don't take a salary. And the people who work here understand that, uh, you know, yes, this is a nonprofit, but it's really, it's also a ministry uh, and, and, and we're, we're here to help people. And so we pay them, um, we, we try to pay them as best we could, knowing that they have to make a living, um, but we don't get crazy. So, but I, I just wanted to share that with you because I was attacked on social media last week for, for, for speaking truth. And, and, and you know, w- people, I, I think, were shunned, in, you know, were, were shamed into being quiet, you know? And that's why these things, as Father Kirby talked about, you know, uh, why these things are what they are today. As a matter of fact, I told you about the book I was reading prior to when we started recording, The, uh, the Lion of Munster, and Father Kirby talked about that bishop and how courageous he was in the face of Hitler and, and the brown shirts. And he wasn't cowed by, you know, their, you know, the brutal things that they did. He spoke truth in face of what could have gotten them killed so
1: it's a very different culture today a lot of like a lot of anti-catholic anti-christian culture is very dominant Mm -hmm. but the people who are christian like good humble authentic christian people were completely silent
0: sure
1: um in comparison and it's a very marked difference to christianity in the past because Mm -hmm entered an age where from the humanism into the renaissance to transhumanism now that secularism is the dominant force and we are subservient to it in a way
0: we are so my question
1: to you would be is what advice would you give to someone who is searching for their vocational purpose they're not happy with the material life they know they might have a vocation but they're afraid to seek it or they're like struggling to find that, that happiness, that like vocational path? Like, what advice would you give to a person in that situation?
0: So the first thing I would do is, is, uh, so when we lost our parents, um, I was uh, struggling with depression. And, and one of the books that I was told to read was The Power of Positive Thinking by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. And in that book, he talked about, I believe he was a, minister, uh, he, he was a preacher or uh, certainly not Catholic, but I don't know what denomination. But the thing that he did say was, you know, um, go through the Bible and pick out passages which are positive or, or leave positive thoughts. Like, for example, um, my favorite passage is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And and so he says, just memorize these passages and just say them in your mind. So I started, you know, I got up off the couch and I started walking each day. And as I did, I was repeating these things. And that led from one thing to another. So now um, as a Catholic, I started uh, going to mass every day. And then I started um, reading, doing morning hours. So, I'd wake up, I'd go to, to church, I'd sit down with a group and do morning prayer, and then I would do uh, a mass, then after mass, I would say a rosary, and now I was ready to go. Um, and, and so, the, the answer to your question is, you, you really need to entrench yourself in a life of prayer. Um, obviously, if you can, receiving the Eucharist every day, Right? saying the rosary or a devotion to the divine mercy chaplet. It, it, it all has to, it has to center around prayer. And and when you have a life of prayer, God God will answer you. He, he will, and, and I can honestly say that when I started living my life that way, I was just genuinely a ha- more happy person. And I also felt like that, after I did my morning prayer and after I attended mass and after I did my rosary and I, and I was driving on my way home, I felt like the, the Holy Spirit was there with me, like giving me ideas about how, how to um, build the, the nonprofit or how to find donors. I, I, I truly think that was true, um, that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was there and he gave, and, and I was given ideas um, to, um, to grow um, our, our work. So that you have to be entrenched in prayer, um, you know, and, and you have to go to mass, and, and mass can't be, the, the, the greatest thing is when you finally, you know, I, I, I truly think a lot of people don't really understand the mass, what's going on there, and once you truly learn what's going on there, like when heaven meets earth, you know, during the holy, 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 and, and heaven and earth come together, and you're a part of that. I mean, it just, it's it just, I mean, it just, it, you, I exploded with like joy and happiness. And to be a part of that, you, you never want to miss it. And that's what you need to, you need to ask God, what do you want me to do, God? Instead of saying, well, if I have this job, I'll make this much money. Because I'll be honest with you, I was making so much money. I, I almost told my boss once, you know, I'm, t- I'm making too much money. You need to cut my salary. I, I just, you know, it was ridiculous. And, you know, that never happened. But I did end up leaving that job um, due to a number of things, including the loss of Sandy's dad and my mom in a very short time. But also, you know, because we had only been down here a couple of years, and I uprooted our family from New Jersey and where all my family lived and Sandy's family lived to Charlotte to take this job. And now here I am two, three years later and I'm not in the job anymore, but God had a plan. He wanted us down here. It wasn't for that job. I would have never been able to do what we do here in Waxhaw, North Carolina, up in New Jersey. It just wouldn't have been feasible. So he had a plan for me and and Sandy and, and we're here and we're living his plan for us. So, and part of that plan is 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 spreading our faith. Like, um, we um, we're just starting another Bible study. We we reach out to other couples like us, and we try to get like four or five couples one night a week. And we'll use like um, something from Ascension Press or uh, the Augustine Institute, um, and and we use it to to do a Bible study. And you know, it's just fellowship. Bible study, learning, you know, learning about our faith. And the more we learn, um, you know, the more we, we become courageous and, and, and can share it, right? So, you know, that's how we live our life now.
1: I definitely can see how divine providence is at play in your work, in your ministry, in your life. And I, so, I especially thought it was really remarkable and so true when you talked about how not many Catholics understand the mystery of the mass and, like, the divine reality that's happening. And, I, like, I'm sure you know of, like, the recent Pew study that where two-thirds yeah. of Catholics, like, don't even believe in the Eucharist as a real presence. Like, terrible. terrible. Um, and it's difficult to convey the mysteries of the faith in today's materialistic world. Yeah. it's not understood. It's not necessarily taught by parents, their children. And it's just where go to Sunday, get in, get out. Like you have to, as you say, make it a life of prayer. Have right. the grocery, have the mass, the divine office, As you're saying mm-hmm. with the prayer. It's yep. a beautiful way to make your life not really about you, but about mm-hmm. God who put you there, like hanging in here by grace of God as you put it which is really beautiful but I think the most attractive thing about the faith as lived out by you is probably how you're able to do it joyfully and authentically Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that's what really has struck me
0: yeah I appreciate that
1: so we've talked a lot about how your faith and your spiritual life and the movie the book the film but Tell us a little bit more like how you train the service uh, how you train the dogs to become ready to go after the service dog organizations and a little bit about the puppies
0: absolutely so um so the first thing you start with your breed you pick your breed the labrador retriever has been bred for hundreds of hundreds of years as a working dog mm-hmm. um the breed came from canada originated in canada uh initially called the Lesser New Finland, smaller New Finland, a New Finland, very big dog. So they called it the Lesser New Finland and eventually became known the Labrador. Where it really developed, though, was in England. And and the royalty in England uh, developed the breed as an upland hunting dog. Now, the the Labrador retriever, the British dog, um, is as happy sitting at his master's side while he's reading a book in front of the fire as he is out working, okay? And so for years and years, this dog was developed to work close to its owner or handler, which is what makes it a great dog for service dog work. It's working with its owner and at times, you know, because service dogs go everywhere with their owner to work, etc. cetera. And, and it's just as comfortable laying there next to its owner at work for four hours, you know, at a time, or whatever. Um, but, and, and so we were very blessed um, when we started. Uh, the first thing we had to do was make sure that we found someone that really knew the pedigrees of these dogs. And so we were luckily introduced to a woman by the name of Sally Bell in, in Columbus, Ohio. And Sally at time had been breeding for about, 40 years, her, her, she was always, she had about 250 champion dogs to her credit, um, and so uh, I met Sally, and Sally uh, sold us our first breeding dog, and then she's donated, you know, months after we uh, uh, got, bought our first dog, she called me up, and she said, hey, Charlie, I got another dog, you know, and I said, well, you know, we, I don't know if we have the money, right, she said, no, no, I'm going to donate this one to you, I really like what you're doing, and so it was that second dog, actually, who uh, is the cornerstone, here we are, five, six generations later of our breeding program, uh, the one she donated. But she's donated male dogs over the years and more females for our breeding program, so we're blessed in that way. But um, as I said earlier, the, the, the lineage is important, the heredity. Uh, you know, what's most important is that you find pedigrees that have clean health, you know, there's a lot of things, hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, uh, eye disorders. So we have generations and generations of dogs that have clean health. Okay. Once you got that out of the way, you know, um, now we know practically from seeing our our breeding dogs, which grew up here as puppies, we've seen them work. We've seen them play. We know that they would be excellent uh, service dogs. And so, the other part of the program, which is the most important part, is how do you nurture these dogs? I mean, because we take them 48 hours old and we start doing uh, these exercises, which when a puppy is born, its neurological system is not complete. And so, what we try to do is we do these exercises that kind of kickstart their nervous system. And uh, so I, you know, with that, we also do early scent introduction. So we introduce um, essential oil smells, whether it's pine or, you know, lavender. And so we introduce these smells and see what kind of reaction the dog has to the smells. Um, And from there, we go to uh, something that we call puppy prodigy, which was developed by a woman out on the West Coast. And, you know, these, these are things that you're doing with a puppy at such a very early age. That's why it's called puppy prodigy. So, you know, sometimes we can have a dog. So our dogs, you know, when they're four weeks old, they're already, they already know how to, how to sit. They may already know how to tug a door open or they're learning. Um, and so we work with puppy prodigy. We immediately at four weeks old, when they are completely mobile, we start using marker training where you use a clicker to mark when the puppy has done something right and you reward it and so the, the feedback we get from our clients which I'm most happy with or, or the organizations we donate our dogs to is that our puppies not only know how to learn already when they get them but they're happy to learn it's fun for them to learn and those two things right there if you got those two things then you're, you're, you're already headed down the right path with the puppy and so you know Sometimes we'll keep the dogs, you know, uh, it depends what the companies want. Some organizations want us to keep them for the, so the first 16 weeks is called the critical period. And some organizations want us to keep them the full 16 weeks. Others want to get them into their own training program at eight or 10 weeks old. So we do what the companies want. Um, But it's that 12 to 16 weeks that is the most influential uh, in the puppy's life. So we make sure that we do everything we can to give that pop a good base. So
1: you mentioned how the dogs go to veterans once they become service dogs and also mm-hmm. autism service dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so litter imprinting for diabetic alert dogs, how do you do that? Um, are you okay. able to train them to go right to the um, so, diabetic?
0: Yeah, so, so imprinting, so if we know that we're gonna have a litter that's gonna go to an organization that might train for uh, diabetic child, juvenile diabetic, what we do is we uh, receive uh, like dental cotton. Uh, So the the person, the the child who needs the dog gets dental cotton, and when they check his blood sugar, if it's low, they put it in their mouth, and they get saliva on it, and they put it in Ziploc bags, and they mark how low their blood sugar was, and the date that they took the sample. And so they collect a lot of those, and they send them to us, and we put them in a freezer. When the pups are born, as soon as they're born, we take those dental contents and we put them in a spray bottle with about an inch to two inches of distilled water. And about four to five times a day, we spray the mother's teats, and then we put the puppies on their nurse. So now, what's happening is the puppies learning that smell means I eat. So they're learning, you know, uh, that smells a good thing. So so they know before they leave us that if they smell that, they're gonna get rewarded with food. And so that's, you know, that's really the easy part. The hard part is when you have to um, teach the dog that uh, they have to start uh, marking. In other words, when, when they smell uh, a child's low, low blood sugar. Um, but it's amazing. How you know with with, you know so you can have highs and lows uh, as a juvenile diabetic, but when when a person's um, blood sugar goes really high, it gives off ketones, and that's like a fruity smell. So it's really with most of the people that we know that have gotten diabetic alert dogs uh, trained as our puppies, uh, it's uh, the lows they really worry about. As a matter of fact, the first young lady that, a young woman that got a dog from us, a puppy, one of our puppies that we imprinted, um, the challenge, she was probably, what, 10 or 11 when, when she got her dog, and um, she, she was saying that she didn't feel her lows. She didn't feel them, and so she was missing them, and so the dog would tell her, and it's really amazing. I mean, that dog is probably eight years old now. Um, no and still working as good as you know she was the day she started working with her individually at two years old
1: wow so it's been great talking to you about Project to Heal its mission how your spiritual life and faith journey has impacted Project to Heal this has been a wonderful conversation and I thank you so much for joining us today
0: I I really appreciate you having me Arielle God bless you and your ministry keep it going we need more young people like you and Will out there